Welcome to Biologists Being Basic, a podcast where we talk about basic research, why we care about it, and why you should too. I'm your host and resident basic biologist, Robin Cake. Each episode, I'm joined by fellow scientists, as well as non-scientist friends, to ask questions, talk science, and have fun. In the fall of 2020, we kicked off the podcast with a mini-series on SARS-CoV-2, causative agent of COVID-19, and discussed three research articles about the virus. These are really great introductions into the world of SARS-CoV-2 research and some of the basics of the virus. Things have changed a lot since these articles were published, with research on the topic proceeding at an unprecedented pace. On the one hand, scientists have generated safe and effective vaccines that are now being distributed around the world, and there are a number of new treatments moving into and through clinical trials. On the other hand, fast-spreading variants are changing the landscape of the pandemic. In today's episode, we focus on clitidepsin, a drug originally approved for the treatment of cancer, and look at how it can be potentially repurposed and used as a treatment against COVID-19. And perhaps even more excitingly, we'll take a look at preliminary reports that demonstrate clitidepsin could be effective against mutated SARS-CoV-2 variants, including the B117K variant. If you want to follow along at home and check out the primary research, you can find these two articles in our show notes. The first was recently published in a journal Science and is titled Plitidepsin Has Potent Preclinical Efficacy Against SARS-CoV-2 by Targeting the Host Protein EEF1A. The second article, though not yet published in a peer-reviewed journal, has been made available as a preprint on bioarchives and is titled Post-Directed Therapies Against Early Lineage SARS-CoV-2 Retain Efficacy Against B117 Variant. Helping me with today's discussion is my B3 co-host and co-author on both articles, Dr. Mehdi Buhudu. Hey Robin, glad to be back. Um, yeah, so my name is Mehdi Buhudu. I'm a postdoctoral fellow at the University of California, San Francisco and Gladstone Institutes. Um, you know, originally trained as a cancer biologist, but this year have sort of repurposed my skills to study COVID-19. So um, learning how to be a virologist. And our special guest hosts are the co-authors on the second paper, Dr. Lucy Thorne. Hi, Robin. Uh, it's lovely to meet you all, and thanks for the chance to chat to you about this. So I'm a postdoctoral scientist at University College London, and I'm a virologist. Um, I've worked on quite a range of viruses from Ebola to HIV, but we also repurposed last March to switch to SARS-CoV-2. And Dr. Anne Catherine Ruschel. Hi Robin, I'm Eddie, hi Lucy. Thanks so much for having us today. Um, I'm, like Lucy, a um, postdoctoral researcher at University College in London. And previously I've worked on mycobacterium tuberculosis, HIV, and now we've repurposed to look at SARS-CoV-2. So I'm a bit more of an infection immunologist than a virologist. But yeah, we're working together on this. And joining us and making sure we stay on point will be non-scientists, expert human, Gina Nguyen. Hi, my name is Gina, and I am the uh, Director of Communications and Events for QBI, and I'm here to be a conduit for the lay audiences. Hey, thanks guys, let's get started. So today we're going to revisit the topic of SARS-CoV-2, the novel coronavirus and causative agent of COVID-19. Specifically, we're going to look at the progress made studying a host-directed drug originally designed to treat cancer that could potentially be repurposed as a COVID-19 treatment. Um, before we get into the kind of nitty-gritty details, um, I wanted us to talk about what host-directed therapy is and why drug repurposing has so much promise for clinical use. Mehdi, can you explain what we mean by host-directed therapies and repurposed drugs? 
Yeah, so when a virus infects your cells, it um, makes use of your proteins in order to replicate itself and then bud off of that cell and infect a neighboring cell and then be transmitted to another person. So by defining the proteins that the virus needs for infection, we can sort of repurpose these drugs that we have developed for cancer to target these proteins that the virus needs. Um, and so that's what we mean by host-directed therapies. So therapies directed at human proteins. Um, and, you know, developing drugs for a disease takes a really long time. You know, typically it takes 10 years um, from when you have the initial discovery to getting it through clinical trials and improved. Um, so what we've tried to do is what's called drug repurposing. So using drugs that have already been developed for other diseases such as cancer and trying to repurpose them for COVID-19, which has a much faster route towards to approval for the disease. Maybe I would just add that um, I think a really beneficial thing about targeting host proteins is that it makes it much less likely that the virus can develop resistance to that drug. So as we're seeing with SARS-CoV-2 at the moment, um, this virus is able to mutate. And that's something that viruses do. It doesn't necessarily mean bad things. It's just it's in particular, this kind of virus can mutate, and that's why the variants are emerging. But this is often when you put them under pressure, and you can do that when you target them with a drug that targets the virus directly. The virus is under pressure to change, and we know that that could drive resistance. When you target the host proteins, so our own cellular proteins, it's much less likely that the virus can change to get away from using that protein and the host proteins themselves don't mutate at the same rate. So it's just, a, it has the potential to be a much more effective therapy. Right, and there's no pressure on the host side to mutate at the same level, right? So, you know, um, our human biology does not lend itself to quite the level of mutations that say a virus would have. And, you know, we have safeguards in our cells to prevent, in fact, our um, cells from mutating. So. Uh, it, it's a different it's a different biology and, and we're taking a drug for an acute amount of time so a short amount of time just yeah it doesn't lend itself to um, host cell evolution on that level yeah and then you know that's actually a really important point Robin because when you have a viral infection you really only need treatment for a few weeks or maybe a month um, maybe even a few days sometimes so I think that you know, the toxicity that we see for cancer drugs, you know, is less of an issue, right? If you have sort of an acute treatment of a disease. Um, so that's why these cancer therapies that, you know, potentially are very toxic over a long time frame can be, you know, more um, effective and less toxic on a short time frame for treatment of viral infections. What also might be, what also I think is a good example for host-directed therapy is the use of dexamethasone. Well, that's probably really more treating the severity of the disease, it also helps us resolve COVID in this particular case, right? And it helps with um, survival of severe infection. And that, that's a drug that's been around forever and is really cheap. So I think that's also a very good example to include in all this. I think what's particularly useful about drug repurposing, and Mehdi touched on this a little, is that we've had a long time studying non-communicable human disease and we actually have a lot of drugs against host targets. There's a lot of drugs that target cancer, cardiac, 
you know, disease, neurodegenerative disease, we have a huge library of preclinical, clinical, FDA approved drugs that we can now go to. Whereas I think our uh, library of effective drugs against known pathogens is considerably smaller. I don't know, have you guys um, ever looked into the potential to repurpose other antivirals or antibacterial drugs? Yeah, so in terms of repurposing antivirals, perhaps the best, most successful antivirals there are are against HIV. You know, these are without doubt have the best track record. And at the start, there was a lot of, um, I mean, at the start of the outbreak, there was definitely discussion about whether some of those could be repurposed. And some, I think, went into clinical trials um, targeting one particular protein of HIV. For them to work and to be retargeted, there has to be a lot of similarity between the part of HIV that the, these drugs are targeting and the part of the coronavirus or the protein of the coronavirus. And actually, I think they are vastly different viruses. And so it would be quite surprising if something... There, there, are, sim, there are certain proteins that have similar features and could lead you open to that. But I don't think that we have antivirals against other viruses that are similar enough to this coronavirus that would be very effectively um, transferred. One perhaps exception to this is, of course, remdesivir, um, which is a polymerase inhibitor. And by that, I mean it targets the protein that is responsible for making new copies of the virus's genome. Um, And this, I think, is effective. That is the way the coronavirus does this and the protein it uses is quite similar to other viruses and remdesivir has worked and is shown to work against other viruses like dengue virus for example and that obviously was in clinical trials and has um, was tested quite early on in the pandemic it um i don't know i can go on but um i think it wasn't shown to have the most success and that is largely about how severe disease plays out with um, in COVID. And I think it's clear that the virus is driving this and that you get very high. Recently, it's been shown the higher levels of virus you get, the more severe disease. But often people turn up very late to hospital. And by then, the virus has kind of kicked off and done the damage. And there are clearly other factors that then kick in and drive the severe disease, like a really big inflammatory response. So targeting the virus, if you do it too late, isn't actually that effective and might explain some of the reasons why remdesivir in clinical trials wasn't as effective as, for example, dexamethasone, which um, AK mentioned earlier, which dampens the inflammation and dampens what is driving severe disease later on. Part of that, I think, also with the repurposing of drugs is um, different infections happen in different organs or different tissue sites. So you also need to think about, can the drug that I'm giving the patient actually reach the site of the viral replication? So I think the pharmacokinetics are quite important. And I think this might also be partially why remdesivir um, is not as efficient as it is as what we see in the lab. And maybe this is a question, um, not for us, but I'll ask it anyways. Um, you know, there are some over-the-counter treatments that people take when they have a cold or when they have something like this. You know, what would be the drawbacks of taking something like remdesivir early as a, um, oh, I, I, you know, being diagnosed SARS-CoV-2 positive, um, should I take something like this 
early before I develop severe symptoms? What would be some of the drawbacks? So it is given intravenously and it isn't something that I think you could take over the counter. I think also the worry with that, um, it comes back to driving resistance as well, which is possible. It's definite. And I think people have shown in a laboratory condition, at least, that you can drive um, resistance and escape from the effect of remdesivir. Um, so I think that would also be quite a worry about people taking a little bit of it and maybe hitting the virus a little bit, but then it gives the virus the chance to evolve and escape. And so, yeah, I don't think it would work in that way. And I think controlling the timing, if you never know when someone tests positive how far into infection you are. Um, so I think it's saying giving it early is a very difficult thing to do. You can be asymptomatic for the whole infection or for a long time up to developing symptoms to get a test as well. I mean, this also speaks to like the use of combination therapy. Like you could imagine combining remdesivir and plitidepsin. In, in the paper that was published a few weeks ago in Science, we did find an additive effect. It could be used in combination and could prevent the sort of resistance that you're talking about potentially, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's been partly why HIV therapy is now so successful, that there are so many drugs that you can use in combination to target different parts of the virus that you put it under so much pressure that it's very hard for it to evolve resistance. So again, I mean, that's talking about much longer chronic treatment. Um, but you can imagine in this case, a combination therapy could be more effective as well. Right. The idea of a combination therapy would be, so, you know, pathogens, viruses uh, mutate and evolve at, at random, and the selective pressure picks for things that can survive whatever drug is being treated on them. So if you have one drug and you have a bunch of viruses and they mutate at random, uh, odds are one of them has a mutation that will help them evade that drug. But if you throw, you know, five, six drugs at them, that virus had to randomly come up with a bunch of mutants that would evade all six drugs. So it's a lot less um, likely, uh, probability-wise, and that's why combination therapies work. Um, so Mehdi had mentioned the science paper, um, and maybe I'll hop us back over to the main focus of um, today's episode, which is on a drug called plitidepsin or aplodin. Um, and this is a FDA approved cancer therapeutic, uh, originally isolated from a species of sea spurt. Um, but the, so this compound targets a specific human protein called eukaryotic elongation factor, IA or EF1A. Um, and ultimately, this drug inhibits the host's ability to turn the cell's mRNA instruction molecules into the cell's active structural protein molecules. Um, and so viruses also hijack this process to make more of their own proteins um, as they take over the cell. So they need this process to make more of their um, protein molecules, to make more of themselves. Um, and so in the case of SARS-CoV-2, you know, what kind of evidence do scientists have that the coronavirus might be hijacking the host translation system for its own benefit? And I will pose that question to the group at large. Yeah, so the reason actually that we decided to study eukaryotic elongation factors was because we, um, you know, we published a paper in April where we comprehensively mapped 
the interactions between the SARS-CoV-2 viral proteins and human proteins. And many of those proteins that physically interact with viral proteins were actually various kinds of elongation factors and translation factors. Um, and in that paper, we actually hypothesized that inhibiting these factors would be antiviral, and we tried a drug called Ternatin-4, um, which was fairly antiviral um, um, against SARS-CoV-2 back in April. Um, Plitidepsin is actually a molecular derivative of Ternatin-4. It's a very related compound, um, but it has a much higher potency, essentially. Um, so uh, we later tested Plitidepsin, Aplidin, and found that it was extremely potent. Um, it, uh, in the paper that we published in Science, we found it was about 30 times more potent than remdesivir in, um, you know, in, a, in a dish with cells growing in, in the lab. Um, the, way that we, the way that we test that is by measuring what's called an IC50 value, which is, um, which is sort of a metric that you can use to compare the efficacy of different drugs. So just to give you guys an idea, the IC50 of platidepsin was 0.9 nanomolar, um, which is fairly potent, um, compared in the same cell line to the IC50 of remdesivir, which was 25, so uh, around 25. So it's around a 30-fold um, difference in, in efficacy and potency. And I can also say in that same paper, we also found it to be effective in mouse models of infection. So that was really exciting. And um, in addition, it just completed phase two clinical trials in Spain, in, in humans, uh, for COVID-19. Um, and so it's, it, it's, I think, a really exciting treatment that could have a transformative potential on the pandemic, potentially, if, um, you know, phase two went well, um, now they just have to start a phase three trial, um, and it could be all over the world helping people, I think. Maybe I could just add that, I mean, the potency is really striking and this is really important in considering it as a treatment because when you give someone a drug, you obviously give them a set amount or a concentration, but you don't quite know how much will reach the cells in the place that you need it to get always. And so the when we talk about potency, I guess what Mehdi's kind of explaining with the different IC50s is that the the better that works at the lower doses, the more likely it's going to work in vivo as well. So if it can work by just getting a tiny bit into cells and stopping the virus replicating and producing its proteins, then it's much more effective than a drug that will only work at a much higher dose. Um, so I think that's is something that's been really striking from the Aplodin data. I was interested to learn more about how this drug works on cancer. So does it inhibit the same protein? Um, what is the name of that protein? EEF1A? Is that, so that's what it does in, in, in cancer yes. and it yes. should do the same in the coronavirus or SARS-CoV-2. Yeah, exactly. So it does the exact same thing in cancer as it does here. It inhibits the same protein. It's the same exact drug. Um, and that protein is actually necessary for cancer progression and viral replication. It just happens to be the case that that protein is required for both or important. So by, by targeting that protein, you're essentially taking the food away from the virus. Is that yes. what's happening? And the same with In cancer, sense, yes. right? You're taking the food away from the cancer the engine. and the disease. Yeah. Yeah. The engine. 
yeah, you're sort of like like putting a, a I don't know, like a you're clogging up the yeah. engine. So I, the I engine like to can't think of it officially. less like you're taking away the food and more like, yeah, like the engine, I think is a good analogy or, you know, you're taking away a tool the virus uses to build itself. So you're essentially, yeah, like the, actually the engine's a really good example where you would just say like, right, you have your car and you're like, I'm actually just going to turn off a component like the engine and prevent the engine from going. So now the car actually can't move forward. So it's not like taking away its food. It's it's breaking something that the virus needed to move forward. Yeah, I d- think, I mean, I don't want to reiterate, but it's your the drug is targeting a really key part of the cell's machinery that is needed for the cells, like our own cells kind of growth and division and to keep the cell healthy in all aspects. And viruses are so dependent on their cells for reproducing them themselves that they often target these really key components of the cellular machinery. So by hitting that one machine and that one protein, then you can effectively hit both processes. I don't know if that makes it much clearer. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it is like... It's a, it's like a car in a way. So if you take away one component, you get a chain reaction that hinders the growth of the next phase or the next stage. Right. I, I think the car analogy is really good. You can think of it too, like not every part of the car is important for moving forward. You could get rid of like the headlines, headlights. <laughs> yeah. Like you could get rid of the headlights. The car will still move forward. It might not work in certain conditions. So if it's really dark out, maybe your car runs off the track and it hits something. Or uh, if you were to, you know, remove the seat cushion, it's a little bit less comfortable to drive, but you can still drive the car. So there's a lot of pieces inside of the cell that the virus doesn't necessarily need to move forward, but there are some crucial essential pieces that would prevent you from actually being able to, to drive the car. So it's similar to the virus. The virus has crucial pieces it needs in order to move forward or to replicate. So Lucy and, and Catherine, you both looked into the efficacy of clitidepsin against SARS-CoV-2, uh, the B117 variant, um, or uh, colloquially, uh, I guess maybe people have been calling it the UK variant, um, which does just mean that it was first identified in the UK. Um, can you explain, um, what a viral variant is, uh, and how a variant is different, say, than from a species in the same coronavirus family? So viruses constantly mutate. So they acquire subtle changes, um, when they infect their hosts. In the um, case of coronavirus or SARS-CoV-2, that is the human and, um, the genome of the virus will acquire subtle changes not dramatic ones, which makes it shift completely. So it's a variant, essentially, of a precursor strain. But Lucy can ship it any moment. No, I think that's wants. it. So normally, yeah, exactly. I think we think of a variant when it picks up a handful of changes like we're seeing at the moment. A difference in species, the viruses normally have, or yeah, different in groups, if you like, uh, have much bigger changes between them. Um, so essentially, SARS-CoV-2, most of the virus still looks exactly the same for with the UK variant as it did um, if you look at the early first wave isolates, other than this handful of changes. And that's what makes it a, a variant. Just small variation is a good way to think about it, as AK explained. 
Yeah, I think there are just just over 20 changes, actually, in the in B117, um, most of them in the spike, which is the protein the virus needs to enter its host cell. Um, yes, but it's not enough to make it distinct from SARS-CoV-2 as its own thing. How, how does this um, differ from the flu? So, you know, I get my annual flu shots. Um, do I need to worry about the coronavirus um, uh, mutating so rapidly that I would have to take a get a vaccine like monthly or um, how does this differ from the flu? I guess that's my my basic question. I mean, flu, and maybe this is a, a better question for Lucy and, and Catherine. So I, maybe I'll do my first pass, but, you know, they are completely different viruses that they are both RNA viruses, but flu has a segmented genome and actually is much smaller. So it has like eight to nine genes that was SARS-CoV-2 uh, happens to have like what, 29 um, SARS-CoV-2 also has, uh, like editing proteins in it to try to prevent too much mutation, whereas flu kind of like inside other species and inside us, if you're like infected with two strains, we'll just like swap <laughs> pieces of its genome. I mean, flu is, uh, mutates a lot faster than SARS-CoV-2, um, which is why you have to get a flu shot every year, um. I don't know. Do you guys know the exact difference between the rates of mutation in SARS versus like in, I guess, maybe just coronavirus versus influenza? That's a good question. <laughs> um, well, I think I think, Gina, your question is a really good one, um, because a lot of people, you know, draw comparisons between flu and what we know about that. And that definitely at the start probably guided all sorts of different decisions. Um, Robin, as you explained, I, I don't know the exact numbers, but coronaviruses are thought to have much slower mutation rates um, than flu because they, like you said, correct some errors that they make and things like that. It's called proofreading. But like when you type really quick, you make more mistakes and then you go back and check and change them. <laughs> it's that kind of concept. Um, but I think it's not also, quite as good as our human system. No, but no, like, no, they still, um, yeah, cool. editor. Yeah. <laughs> But and they're obviously at the start, what was interesting is I think it's a really good question because I'm not really sure we know this yet. So this is the first time we're seeing a coronavirus play out and change in this way, um, definitely in recent you know memory. So when it first emerged, it seemed like it was quite stable. There weren't many mutations that were arising. There were a few here and there. And it is always mutating. But I guess what I mean is that they weren't becoming selected. So they weren't becoming dominant in the viruses that were circulating so that every virus you see has them. Um, and it's really only, I guess, in the last sort of six months that we've started to see these variants arise. And that seems to be happening in some places where there has been quite a high level of infection and so there is some immunity in the population and that can put the virus under pressure and cause it to change and mutate to try and escape the immune response um, so that it can continue to infect and transmit. So at the moment it seems like it's a really good question for the vaccines because um, everyone is trying to understand whether the vaccines that were developed early on against the early wave variants and how they looked will they still be effective against these new variants um, and we can kind of maybe get into discussing that a little bit but that is 
I, I don't know if we're there yet to be able to say how often this will happen and how often you would need a vaccine. But it's a really key question to see how they change, if the vaccines we have will need adjusting. And I think there's already work going on to do that, to produce new vaccines that target the more um, you know, recent variants as well. So it's talking around your question, but I think it's a really good point that we just don't fully grasp yet to be able to give you a timeline of how often we would have to update this. Kind of depends on how the, the virus plays out. But I think it's also, it's what you, Lord Lucy said, the changes happen because the virus experiences our immune response. But I think also the viruses experience humans as a whole, right? It only kind of crossed the species barrier. Absolutely. Probably quite recently. And it kind of gets to know the human hosts a little bit better and will acquire changes that make it more suitable um, to infect humans, really. But as Lucy also said, I mean, with the vaccine, I mean, the vaccines that we have that are being rolled out at the moment have been really successful against the viruses we've seen last year. And there's obviously scope to develop these vaccines further if we need to or adapt them. And with um, drug treatment, um, it- with these drugs on the market and um, with us having access to these uh, drugs and, and treatments, does this mean that we don't need to necessarily worry about the variants so much? Because if um, Apladin, um is successful at blocking the host protein, then that means regardless of the variant, we'll keep the engine from going. I think that's the idea, and uh, this is a good way for Lucy and Anne Catherine to get to the paper that you guys worked on. Um, so you guys actually tested plitidopsin against the variant. Um, can you talk about you know its efficacy, its potency against the variants, and how it compares to its efficacy against uh, maybe the the original strain <laughs> of virus, the original variant? Um, yes, we can. So we did this in collaboration with Medi. Um, so we were quite interested to see whether while Aplodin is a host or Tidepsin is a host targeted drug, whether the new variant may have acquired changes that for whatever reason makes it interact differently with a host cell. And maybe um, this particular protein is not that important to it anymore in its replication cycle. So what we did is we infected in our lab in vitro um, cells with an older, an earlier corona, SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus and this um, variant, B117, and tested aplidin against it as well as remdesivir. Um, and what's actually really encouraging is that um, aplidin or plitidepsin is still very, very efficient against it. Really, as Maddie already said, um, probably an order of magnitude or two. Um, better than remdesivir. So PharmaMart, which is the pharmaceutical company that you guys collaborated with and that actually produces plitidepsin, um, early in the pandemic, so back in March, there was a report that they had tested this against a different coronavirus, um, HCOV229E, um, which actually circulates in the population. It's uh, typically in healthy uh, adults causes mild flu, uh, cold symptoms. So it, it typically just uh, makes you a little bit sick and that's it. Um, but yeah, so they tested this against, you know, a different strain of coronavirus and found that it was effective against that coronavirus. So I think to Gina's question of, 
do we think this drug will be active against multiple strain or multiple variants? I think that supports pretty well that this type of host-directed therapy um, could be good at targeting, you know, not just different variants of the coronavirus, but maybe even different strains of corona, the coronavirus family. Yeah, absolutely. And I think Gina's question was really interesting because it's moved us from talking about vaccine versus drug uses as well. And obviously vaccines are preventative. Um, they're always going to be a better measure if they're effective and they give you long lasting protection um, and things that I guess we're still trying to understand about the vaccine. But I really think that there's a role for drugs as well. If you can stop people getting the most severe disease and kind of bring the level of severity down to more like a common cold type symptoms um, and also prevent long COVID, which gives people long term health problems as well, then actually you're taking the edge of the disease and maybe that takes the burden off hospitals and I don't really want to get too far into debating public health but you know you suddenly uh maybe the you bring the death rate down as well which is really important um and maybe helps everyone to get back to functioning again so I really think that there's a role for both and that we need both in the kind of the effort to combat it. I just wanted to quickly add to that that you know what's really great about targeting translation and this elongation factor is that it it seems to hit something that's really critical for viral replication, specifically coronavirus replication. So, and without replication, you know, virus is not going to make you as sick, right? Because it's not replicating. It's not, it's not making more of itself. So I think by targeting this sort of core facet of, of how this virus replicates, means, you know, makes it more likely that it will be effective against different variants. You know, it doesn't mean it definitely will, but I think it makes it much more likely that it will. So I think it's, you know, we're going to continue testing this against more variants. Um, and we hope that it will, we, we anticipate that it will work, but we, we also hope that it will work. <laughs> I mean, even thinking beyond coronavirus, it's really, uh, you know, it's tempting to wonder if this is going to work about against other viruses as well as so many of them are dependent on aspects of this kind of host cell um, translation machinery, if you like. So I think, you know, once the heat is out of the pandemic, it's going to be really interesting to see whether that might be a drug that you could use to hit multiple classes of virus. Right. I think in the field yeah, totally of, agree. yeah, in the field where we're looking for antivirals, you know, a lot of the time we're looking for these proteins or these targets that could be kind of the pan pathogen or pan viral uh, effective treatments where you're saying like, okay, you could hit one factor and it would affect a bunch of different families of viruses. And that's kind of like what the ultimate goal I think of the field is. Yeah. And I think translation inhibitors have the potential to get there. I mean, if I was to choose one thing that I think we should go after for as a pan viral therapy, I would say translation is on at near the, near the top or at the top of that list in my mind, inhibiting translation. Hmm. I think it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out in the clinical trials as well. You know, like we were talking about the timing of treatment and when how early do you need to stop the virus in its tracks to stop it triggering a damaging inflama inflammatory response and stuff as well. So I think... Um, Absolutely. It seems really clear from recent studies that, you know, people who are really sick have very high levels of the virus. So it suggests that there should be a window where you can really stop it. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's going to be interesting. I to do see. want to 
Yeah. Um, just because uh, in one of our other earlier episodes, someone had asked if this was going to be like prophylactic treatment or something that you would take after. I do want to note that, you know, with host-directed therapies, this isn't something that you would want to just continuously take, right? So like it, your body needs translation, <laughs> like your, your human cells right. need to translate proteins. <laughs> so you wouldn't want to like say be on plitidepsin for the entirety of your life to try no. to prevent yourself from getting any infection. Like this drug no, will please do not do that. hurt your body as well. I was going to say it's like Medi explained earlier really well about if you can take something for a short amount of time maybe you avoid the toxic effects and that might work for virus infections that are really acute you know like coronavirus which for most people is short for anything that's more chronic um, then you get into the realms of it being useful for example like a chemotherapy um, but then you're obviously starting to experience much more like of the bad side effects of targeting the host as well. Yeah. So I do want to just yeah, temper our excitement and our enthusiasm <laughs> a little bit by saying like, this would not be something that we would just be like putting people on indefinitely. This would be, you know, something that we think has potential to be, you know, a, a good therapeutic against viruses, but because it would be a more acute, um, hopefully something where you get diagnosed early with a virus and could be, you know, given um, early in, during the infection. And and then one quick point to add is that this drug does have to be given intravenously, right? So you do actually need to be in a hospital and be given an IV to receive the drug. So, you know, if you most likely this will be given to patients that are having severe reactions to the disease in in the hospital. And I mean, that's sort of where I see it. I mean, that's hasn't been fully, I think, elucidated yet. But um, so you can't I don't think you can't just take this at home, you know, unless you're a doctor. (laughs) So. But I guess it also gives you the blueprint or kind of the backbone to develop something that you might not have to inject, right? That you ultimately could take as a tablet. Yeah, possibly it could be developed as such, yeah. Um, I was wondering if one of us wanted to explain what we mean by, you know, mutations. You guys have mentioned a couple times now, most of the mutations are in spike protein. Why are we so concerned about mutations in spike protein? Essentially, the spike is that the protein that the virus needs to enter the cells, but it's also the protein that the large majority of our, the human antibody responses are targeted against. So we refer to when we're talking about neutralizing antibodies. So antibodies that bind the spike will prevent the virus from entering a cell. These antibodies bind very specifically to the spike. So it's a bit like um, a jigsaw where the antibody fits perfectly to a certain structure that is presented on the virus. Um, and if the virus mutates the spike, the structure might change. Essentially, the worry then is that the virus can evade the antibodies that we have produced against it. Um, but obviously, we produce quite a wide array of antibodies against several pieces of the spike. So losing one binding site is not necessarily going to be detrimental or less protective. And I, one thing I would add to, to that is just that there are mutations outside of spike too, and we don't know what effect they're having, right? So everyone's focusing on spike, but we also need to be thinking about these other mutations that are happening in other proteins and the effect they're having. Yeah, definitely. I think this function and what spike does um, is probably one of the better understood parts because everyone is so focused on it for the reasons that Anne Catherine's just explained. Um, so Medi's absolutely right. There are other mutations in these viruses and we, in parts of it that we don't fully know what it does yet. Um, so understanding 
that might not change, for example, um, how the vaccines target it or our immune response, but it could be changing other features of the virus that people are talking about, whether things are more transmissible, whether they cause more severe disease. And that's really hard to model and understand properly in the lab. All we can really do is try and understand exactly what that part of the virus does um, and if there's a difference between the new and the older versions. But uh, I think it's really important to be able to consider the virus as a whole because these things kind of you know all the parts of the virus go together and they have to work together as well so you can't really think about the spike in isolation when you're considering the whole biology of the virus. I was just kind of wondering if you had sort of unlimited resources and could push on you know a few key fronts uh, you know what would what would be your solution for the pandemic like you know would you push on host-directed therapies and vaccines would you post on viral directed therapies like or would you just would you mainly focus on vaccine development and having different vaccines that can target the different variants you know considering these different variants that are emerging what would what would your focus be moving forward i was going to ask you a similar question earlier when you were talking about your bets would be the translation inhibitors <laughs> um and catherine do you want to I'm curious what all of us think, because yeah. we all have different ideas because we have different backgrounds. Absolutely. So I think the reason this is a really, it's a great question. And like you said, I think everyone in the world right now probably has an opinion on this yeah. and what we should be doing. And that is kind of, yeah, from which background. So I think, as I said earlier, I think really we need, you know, you want investment in both the vaccine and the drug side. As we are more involved in developing antivirals and also understanding um, the virus, I can talk more about what I think from the drug side. And this is definitely just, just opinion, right? So we are working on both, um, as well as the work we've been doing with you, which is looking at the host-directed therapies. We've been get, trying to get a real feel for how does the virus interact with your innate immune response? And by that, I mean like your very frontline immune response that everyone has sort of every cell has built in and every virus has to get around this and switch it off somehow or escape it to be able to set up infection and so this is a real battle between the virus and the host cell and what why it's so interesting is because the severe disease seems to be linked as you've probably heard by this big inflammatory response because if you can understand how the virus kicks it off then we're trying to get drugs that would enable us to just tune down or dampen a specific part of the immune response that is, you know, driving the bad inflammation and severe disease. And that involves working on the virus itself and maybe stopping its replication like we're doing with the host targeted therapies um, and also direct um, drugs that hit the virus itself, but also maybe understanding the how the immune system becomes activated and targeting drugs about against that, which is essentially what dexamethadone does in a very broad way to do a blanket switch off. We want to get more specific to tune down the bad parts. Right. I was going to say, like, do you think that it's because it doesn't right? the severe disease, the inflammation response doesn't happen in everybody. Do you think this is more not quite a... Um, the virus is doing something specifically, but maybe just that person has a different, like a bad day or a, has been exposed to something else or that something is just like in that person specifically different. 
I think we've seen that. I mean, we've seen that a lot with SARS-CoV-2. That obviously there's a massive spectrum between people that have hardly any symptoms or no symptoms at all, and then people that progress to quite severe disease. But we also know that from like very mild infection, like RSV or um, uh, rhinoviruses, that not everybody develops a cold or a runny nose. So there's intrinsically in our immune response already in our airways, essentially, there's a way for some people to shut it down. And understanding these first interactions really well can just kind of help to fine tune the immune responses and just maybe catch it out quite early before it gets into the lower lungs or, you know, yeah. causes it's, severe damage. Exactly. So this is it's a really good question. And it's something we've, we're trying to understand. And it's hard to do that in the lab, you know, in a very, where we're just looking at the virus and some cells. And that obviously is hard to extrapolate to say what's going on in someone when they get infected but I think it's really key to understanding this like why some people get more sick and that seems in some ways to link to whether you have comorbidities um, and certain conditions and age and that we think can maybe affect and this is you know this is kind of us hypothesizing a bit here but this can maybe affect your general level of inflammation in your body. So perhaps it's the environment that the virus comes into and kicks things off in will then determine the consequences of whether the infl inflammation gets out of control and can't be regulated or and the virus is manipulating all of that or whether it's just kind of, yeah, keeps it under wraps like a bit the more. last piece of straw that like broke the camel's back yeah so possibly like, yeah yeah exactly it just tips it over the edge where it's becoming damaging rather than productive and controlling infection which it does in the majority of people who don't you know experience the severe symptoms so it's really interesting this and i think um we i mean <laughs> one of the things i love about virology is that because you have to think about the virus in the context of its host and that's like the real basic molecular level through to like cells, organs and the whole population. And it really reveals a lot about our biology and our populations. And I think SARS-CoV-2 is really putting a spotlight on that at all levels. So, I mean, we're learning a lot about this virus at a crazy rate, but I think we're learning a lot about our own kind of biology as well. Yeah, I think like a really good example for that is, for example, the work that the Casanova lab did um, in New York looking at... Um, mutations in the human genome and malfunctions in innate immune signaling, essentially, and how they unearth um, mutations and signaling pathways in people that have been fine so far, but just now that SARS-CoV-2 hit them, there seemed to be a worse outcome. And that, yeah, that explains some of the pathology, but it's also biologically really interesting and helps us understand more the biology of our immune system. Gina, I was, before we move on, I was going to ask you that question. What do you think? we need yeah i was gonna actually say mm. i'm curious good question actually what gina uh our non-scientist yeah. would want what should we do gina yeah. what should we like what would put you want into? to invest in and yeah. oh <sighs> invest in well certainly both the vaccine and um and, and drug treatments um and right now that's helping us a lot because there are not there's not enough vaccines to go around um, supply is very low right now, and we need something to supplement until everyone is vaccinated. Um, and I think if, well, if I was to make a prediction, I would say that we would have to live with it. I mean, it exists, it's here. Um, it, it, you know, it was new and novel last year, and now we're pretty much 
doing the best we can to manage and survive alongside um, SARS-CoV-2. So um, I think we'll just have to, we'll have to adapt and, (laughs) and um, mutate along with the virus. That's (laughs) what I think. Yeah, that's, that's my guess. <laughs> but that's also been really clear already. You know, we might not be mutating genetically, but we're adapting <laughs> for sure. You know, we're adapting everything yeah. about how we interact and behave as humans to kind of deal with this, aren't we? So absolutely. You know, one thing I just want to add to this, you know, I think therapies are important. I think vaccines are important. I think we also need to be studying this long COVID and sort of what sort of long-term effects we're seeing because, and sort of what, therapies or interventions might prevent that and and what predisposes individuals to experiencing that um, because you know if we're able to to have good treatments and good vaccines like are we also going to prevent these long-term effects from being infected with the virus so I think that also needs to be taken into account um, in future work I totally agree and I think it's the kind of burden and the impact of long COVID is something maybe you know I know it's been emerging over the last year and there's a lot about it but until I think we're a few years clear of this peak I think that's something that we'll really see and understand actually we saw that um, the same was with the West African Ebola outbreak so um, it was the first time and so I went there as a virologist as part of the response for a short time and it was the first time that you actually followed up survivors and saw the long-term impacts. And it's the same, again, from the acute disease. People who survived had really chronic health problems. And actually, you tend to forget once the, the peak of it has passed that the long-term impact that can have. So I know there's a lot of studies starting to look into the features of long COVID and like what might be driving it. Is it the immune response, again, that's become dysregulated? Or is it something the virus has triggered? So I really, I think you're absolutely right that we need to really understand that and know if there's any ways we can use that to make interventions and improve it. I think your point is really good that we need to just also study the long-term effects of just having acute COVID or not even acute COVID. I mean, there's studies of people who didn't have severe symptoms who then will have cardiac arrest later or have a stroke or have, you know, there's changes to your body that happen just from the infection that I think we should be um, studying and be aware of so that people understand the full risk of being exposed to the virus. So I think there's something to be said about, you know, some people, I think when they see that, oh, you can be asymptomatic or it's really mild, think, oh, then I'll just get it and it's fine. And I think there's a cost to getting viruses that I, I think not everybody fully appreciates or understands. So I'm not an epidemiologist or, uh, or a virologist. I am a proteomic scientist um, who happens to study viruses, but I still get a lot of questions from like, friends and family who are just curious or they find something on the internet or someone asks them a question and I'll just get post questions a lot of like, is this right? Or what should I do? Or, you know, like, what is the virus doing? Like, how scary are these variants? And a lot of times I don't have great answers. I, you know, I give them the caveat of like, well, that's not really my area of expertise, but I can help you try to decipher the primary research article if you find it, or I can look into this. I I mean, Lucy and, and Catherine, you guys are actual virologists. I'm sure you must get even more questions than I do. Like, how do you handle questions 
um, either that you know, or how do you talk to your friends and family about kind of the virus and the pandemic and things you do know and things you don't know? Yeah, I think, I mean, great question. I think, firstly, I think it's really important we do. And we, I've spent, you know, we do a lot of public engagement and we did before and we've tried to find new ways to carry that on, not in person. But I think that's from everything from, like you said, chatting to your family and friends to the, you know, an Uber driver on the way home from work or something. <laughs> Everyone's got questions right now. And there's so much information out there. I think if you have an understanding, it's really important we try and communicate that. So um, the questions... I mean, they're also really good because they make you really challenge what you think. You know, you get some real curveball questions from family and friends, <laughs> especially uh, at the start. And everyone, the types of questions are, like you said, about just trying to understand, I think mainly about how you protect yourself. And I, for me, this is key, like understanding how the virus was spread and then what measures you can take and how what is the most effective measure. I think the most of the questions are about navigating day to day and trying to protect yourself and those around you. Um, as well as understanding a lot of the words that are used in the media, and this has been about uh, the epidemiology, like what's the R number, how does this spread, how does the vaccine work now, what's a variant, you know, things we've covered today. Um, so they've been quite far reaching. Um, and actually at the start, we put together a little sort of fact file of a Q&A, trying to answer a lot of, I was collating all the questions we got from friends and family to just put it all in one place as a source of information but um i mean science has moved so quickly it's quite hard to keep up with that and collate the key bits so now i think it's just in a more ad hoc informal way that we're doing this it's usually when a new headline comes in then yeah. the next question is <laughs> what does it mean or yeah. what do you think your family whatsapp um, group picks up <laughs> yeah, yeah yes pretty much and sometimes you can go back to literature and look at the actual data um but also sometimes we really need to say, I I don't know, because there's a lot of things that are really just emerging or they're not backed up by enough data to make claims on. Yeah, I think that's really important so, yeah. as well, explaining like the limits of what we know and what we don't yet know. And I think that's something we deal with in science all the time. You're always pushing the boundary of what you know and a kind of appreciating the limits of that as well. But science is playing out in the media at the moment. You know, we're learning so much in a very public way. So every twist and turn is debated and very public, um, which on one level is great. But I think that also makes it very hard for people. You know, it's complicated to follow. And so being happy to put your hands up and say this isn't something we know yet, but it's something we really need to understand is really important about being like transparent about what science is informing as well. Right. A lot of the times it's, just being open and saying, I don't know the answer. Also, I don't think anyone knows the answer yeah, yet. Exactly. <laughs> We're trying. It's still new. And as fast as science is working right now, like this is probably the fastest we've worked on something. It definitely uh, is. I can hands down say so, this is the fastest we've ever worked. <laughs> yeah. So this is, you know, we're typically, scientists are very methodical and like, okay, let's, do things, you know, we do move kind of slow in general, but, you know, right now we're trying to, or we are <laughs> moving much faster than we've moved before. So a lot of the times it's like, I haven't had years to collate a bunch of knowledge and background information. You know, we're all learning as we're studying and like, not just learning new things about the virus, but also trying to now research past things as well and like bring ourselves up to speed on 
on a history of um, the virus. Yeah, and still doing things in, you know, you, you know, the quality of science, you know, you still want to be doing things with the normal rigor that you do everything in and really understanding and the thinking. And I think for us, that's been about being focused and knowing what we've done before on other viruses. So what can we really address in a really way that adds value? And we spent quite a lot of time at the start really thinking about this and, you know, where should we most put our skills? Because being at home as a virologist in a pandemic was quite hard. It's like sitting on your hands trying to like fight the urge to go and do something. Um, but you don't just want to rush in and put everything out there. You want to be making sure that your contribution is like up to the normal standards of science, but just at an accelerated rate, you know, to actually be useful with the speed that everything's moving. So it's a challenge, but it's a, <laughs> it's a good one. I'd love to hear about the start of the collaboration between um, your lab and are you both in the same lab? I'm sorry for making that assumption. Um, Ak and, and Lucy. No, we are at, we're in different labs. But okay, we, sorry, but our, sorry for making. No, <laughs> not at all. Well, we're, our labs work really closely together normally on HIV, um, but then we kind of joined forces at the start of the pandemic to again a way to accelerate it was been to work together and that's been brilliant actually it's a really different way of working so it's been to well maybe I should ask and Catherine if she agrees <laughs> but um, was, I think it's it been brilliant horrible. <laughs> yeah um yes no it's been a completely different way of working for us because yes we work usually we share lab meetings for example and exchange ideas but really focusing on the same project and driving that forward together has been an amazing experience and I think it really, it helps you pull your knowledge. You know, there's so much to keep on top of. And we come from slightly different backgrounds. So um, I've got more virology and AK's got more immunology. And we were working as well with Lorena, who um, is now in the Krogan lab. Um, and so having three of us with different kind of thoughts and backgrounds has really helped move it on. And I think that is what is so nice to just extend it to our new collaboration with Mehdi and you guys. That again, it's having a completely different skill set and perspective that really lets you ask proper questions about what we need to, you know, what's the next big thing we need to understand. And coming at that from different perspective, perspectives really helps move things on. So it's quite exciting. Yeah, and I think Lucy also alluded to how um, this collaboration started in the end when she mentioned Lorena, who moved to um, Nevin Krogan's lab. And then it was essentially from London to the States and then got back in touch with us. Obviously, we've been in touch while she was away as well not like we just stopped contact no um and essentially said look this uk variant is coming up there's some interesting work we can do and just kind of setting up a collaboration and it's been really good so far i mean it's taken yeah. off <laughs> and it's taken off yeah i, I want to say that we I think we got really lucky with this because we were really interested in studying the variant Lorena just joined our lab from 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 your group from your university and um and she put us in contact with you and and your your labs were some of the first labs in the world to really get this virus and culture this virus so I think we were extremely lucky to to have that connection um and start working with you so early on and get these results on the host directed therapy so early on so well, I think likewise. a little bit of luck <laughs> is at play yeah, the connections that have been made during the pandemic um, and just the collaborative nature that scientists everywhere have been 
kind of coalescing around one problem and saying like, well, I'm not an expert at this, but I do have expertise in some other area. Like, how can I be of use or how can I help or yeah, making connections um, between the scientists and the groups is like pretty fascinating. Yeah, I hope that I hope that changes science, you know, the way we operate normally. Yeah. I mean, I think it will. I think uh, just like the pandemic has changed, I think a lot of parts of society there's a lot of talk of like, okay, when are things going to go back to normal? And a lot of people have made the, you know, I think accurate prediction that I don't know that things go back to normal per se. I think there will be a new normal. I, I don't think we'll have to live with, you know, social distancing and masks forever. But I think there will be a new way that the world moves forward. And I think there'll be a new way that science moves forward as well. I think this, the pandemic has broken down a lot of the barriers that we put in place or that humans thought were in place that actually weren't there and that there's a, you know, the ability for people to work together is um, much higher than we originally thought it was. Yeah, look, I would say that I think collaboration is the single biggest driving force behind the progress that's happened this year in our lab, at least. And I think for, for many other labs, even potentially the vaccine development and all of that, there's just been tons of collaboration in coronavirus in studying SARS-CoV-2 around the world. And I think it's the single biggest contributor to, to the speed speed with which we're doing research. Um, and I and I hope it changes science. You know, we're suddenly, you know, being siloed in science, I think is a problem, right? If you're just your own lab doing your own thing, I think it's it's less conducive to to making discoveries really quickly. Um, you know, some people do that. I think that's fine. But I think that bringing different different kinds of people from different parts in the world together to work on the same problem is a very effective way to rapidly get at, at discovery um, and move things forward. So I'm excited about how this has changed science moving forward, and I hope it I hope it stays this way. Thank you for joining us today in an update on COVID-19 research and a look into plitidepsin, a potential host-directed therapeutic against SARS-CoV-2 infection. We hope you join us next time for more conversations on biology research. We want to extend a huge thank you to every person who's doing their part during the pandemic to keep us all safe, to feed us, to heal us, to keep our daily lives running, and to help support researchers and medical professionals who are working to combat the virus. Thank you to everyone for remembering to wash your hands and keeping up the social distancing and wearing your masks when you're out in public. We know that times are hard and confusing, so thank you so much for sticking with and listening to health experts. We hope that our podcast can be a source of information and maybe even entertainment during these challenging times. In our roles as scientists, we always aim to be as accurate and precise as possible while still communicating plainly. But in case we didn't do this, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns about what we said in this episode, or you just want to say hi, please reach out to us at biologistbeingbasic at gmail.com or at biosbeingbasic on Twitter or Instagram. We'd love to hear from you and we will do our best to respond. And if you like this episode and potentially want to hear more, please like and subscribe. We want to thank Professor Nevin Krogan, who is our boss and the director of QBI. And we want to thank UCSF and Gladstone Institutes, who are our employers. I would like to thank our special guests, Lucy and Anne Catherine, for helping discuss these papers. And especially thanks to our guest and friend and all-around awesome human being, Gina. Thank you to Alexa Rocourt and Michael Edrager, who are our sound engineers and producers. Our music has been Catalyst and Passport from Purple Planet Music.
So eventually we'll have to just live with SARS-CoV-2 and become and develop our own um, mutating strategies, maybe. <laughs> well, I think, I mean, we're always, we're always in a race with things. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, I hope that we can c- come up with better tools against it so that we can live with it in a way that it's not having the same impact on us right now. Yeah. Ideally, SARS-CoV-2 will not become a selective pressure for <laughs> absolutely. the population. That, absolutely. That is a very long game. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. <laughs> not be great. <laughs> I don't while. think that's a race we'll win so well. 